Thanks for tuning in to the Fertility Health Podcast, hosted by renowned fertility specialist Mark P. Trollis, MD. Each episode features first-hand advice and potential treatment news, tips, and strategies listeners can use on their fertility journey. And now, here's your host, Dr. Trollis. Okay, so Steve has joined us on the program, and I guess what I'm looking to talk about, Steve, is there are many practices that are very active in in vitro fertilization, and there's a lot of of GYNs that are specializing now in, in minimally invasive surgery, it seems as though the, the role that is specific for us as reproductive endocrinologists is IVF. So before we start talking about specific diseases like endometriosis and tubal disease and fibroids, where, where do you see our role and our niche in surgery today? I... Uh... Firmly, emphatically believe that we have a significant role in reproductive uh, surgery. Uh, you and I were both trained as reproductive surgeons as well as in vitro fertilization guys, and uh, I think it's an instrumental part in uh, what we do. Uh, there are many times that uh, people that have come from out of out of the region. And have, I have uh, put my trust in the, sur- the type of uh, needs that the patient has from the surgical standpoint, only to find that uh, it was done suboptimally. So there is no doubt that as reproductive infertility specialists, that there is a critical role in us uh, learning how to do reproductive surgery as well as continuing our efforts to become um, outstanding surgeons. So I remember training, and I guess that's a sign of getting older when you keep talking about when we trained, but when, when we did, it seemed as though we did, you know, for unexplained fertility, uh, three cycles of clomiphene or so with IUI, then um, gonadotropins, and then consideration of a diagnostic laparoscopy uh, prior to going to in vitro fertilization. So where, do you see any role for diagnostic laparoscopy any longer? I know my numbers have significantly dropped. I don't remember ever doing one uh, in, in the last, gosh, decade or more. Where do you see the role of a diagnostic laparoscopy? It's a really good question because the I, I liken this to absolute individualization of every patient. If I do a pelvic sonogram and I really pay enormous uh, attention uh, to the position and location of ovaries. So, for example, if they're kissing, uh, meaning that they look like they're behind the uterus, that's a sign of uh, pelvic adhesions and or endometriosis. If the ovaries are situated uh, laterally, really ex- extensively laterally, uh, or outside the normal region, I'm thinking that that patient, at least I need to discuss with her the possibility that what we're thinking is unexplained infertility may actually be some pelvic adhesive disease. Um, I also think a long lost arch is uh, hysterosalpingograms. Uh, many times uh, I see reproductive uh, endocrinologists, I see the general gynecologist, 
just reading the report. And uh, it is not uh, an unusual thing. When I'm doing the uh, uh, HSG, hysterosalpingogram, I sit and confer with the radiologist, and we're looking for cephalad, uh, deviation of fallopian tubes, uh, enlarged uterine cavities, and even evaluation of the cervix, which is an underestimated, I think the most underestimated organ in the human body, because if you can't easily navigate any type of catheter or uh, imaging catheter system through the cervix, it may be difficult for the sperm to get through there. It may be challenging for even, you know, for IVF. So I pay enormous amount of attention, and those patients, I think, maybe would be good candidates in the face of moving to more advanced therapy. However, in the face of what appears to be completely, completely normal, uh, I sit there and I offer uh, anything from you could try on your own to surgery as an option, though it's very unlikely that we're going to find anything. And even if we do find things, like endometriosis, that probably has no impact on their ability to get pregnant, to just proceeding forward with more advanced therapy. So I, I offer it to the patient as an option. I'm not I'm not a paternalistic in my approach, uh, but I, I overall, as you're explaining, when it appears that you truly believe that you have an unexplained factor, I don't recommend doing laparoscopy because it's not going to change what we're going to do. It's just not ultimately, unless there's some type of risk factor and whether it's historical or uh, some type of pelvic imaging uh, that makes me think, then I would consider it, but not not in, in this long-winded uh, answer for you, not traditionally. If I don't suspect something, I don't recommend doing it. Yeah, I, I agree totally. Uh, if the tubes are open, uh, if there are no masses uh, on the ovaries but ultrasound, and the patient is asymptomatic, otherwise, uh, if we're in fertility, I think uh, trials of uh, intrauterine insemination or IUI is certainly uh, uh, the, the uh, most uh, efficacious and least expensive way to go for them. And then if they're not successful at that point, you have to discuss, hey, do we, do we consider laparoscopy or... Are you, are you uh, able to proceed to in vitro fertilization? Because, you know, not every state has, or very few, unfortunately, have mandated coverage for IVF, and it still is costly. So I think it is important to give, give that option to them. Uh, but, I, I, you know, you mentioned endometriosis, and I think it's a good segue. Uh, we know that it's, it's ubiquitous. It's pretty, pretty um, uh, common in, the, in, in women, 10 to 15% of all women, but... When you get into the pelvic pain and the infertility patients, uh, 30 to 50 percent of the patients with endometriosis have infertility and somewhat vice versa. So the studies that we see on, on endometriosis, you know, the low stages, you know, the stage one and two, it still seems to be controversial over whether there's any impact, although I'm not really convinced that there is. but. I wanted to pose this question to you, Steve. If you have stage three, stage four endometriosis, which is moderate to severe, and, and studies have shown that those are the patients, particularly stage three, are going to benefit most from surgery, at what point do you say, hey, let's, let's do this extensive surgery so that you can potentially try naturally, or do you say, look, you have so advanced endometriosis, why don't we just do IVF? Well, I uh, personally am a very conservative uh, person. 
uh, and I like to give patients patients the option. Uh, that's number one. Number two, um, if we're talking about endometriosis of the ovary specifically, what we, we refer to as endometriomas, as opposed to endometriosis that's not involving the ovaries, um, again, it's individualized. Um, in a patient where um, the endometriosis may impact ovarian reserve, then if a patient has some type of mass on her ovary, I would consider resection of that prior to any therapy. Uh, and there's probably going to be some uh, associated concomitant uh, tumor pathology, typically when we have endometriomas. Um, on the other hand, if I that patient is going to be moving to endometriosis, as the literature suggests, that it's when the endometrioma is more than three centimeters uh, or is in the way of aspiration of eggs that I would consider taking the endometrioma out. But as we both know, um, the the data from women with endometriosis and endometriomas suggests that IVF outcomes are very, very similar to those women who don't have any um, pathology in their pelvis. And it's only when in the face of poor egg quality, uh, perhaps poor ovarian response, that I would, I would discuss with the patient uh, in a different setting to possibly go in and do laparoscopic uh, evaluation and treatment for endometriomas um, to possibly improve uh, ovarian response because um, I, I hate to think that we didn't do anything to augment uh, egg reserve before moving to egg donation, for example. Yeah. So that, that's a long-winded way of... Uh, answering your question, but I, I hope that addresses what you're talking about. Again, it always comes back to an individualized approach, and one of the issues that I have with many many large programs is that everybody sort of gets put into a recipe type of therapy, and I think it's really important for people that are looking for that type of physician is that don't get put into a, a bucket and go into this pathway that everybody needs to be individualized uh, for their personal care, and I know that's I know that's how you manage your patients as well. Yeah, e- excellent point, Steve. I-, I think it's important for the listeners to know that when they when there are when there is endometriosis of the ovary and, and what you described earlier, endometriomas, patients are really between a rock and a hard place. If we are convinced by imaging, whether it's that typical what we call ground glass appearance of the ovary that suggests endometrioma, or even MRI now, uh, radiologists are really helping us uh, discern uh, endometriosis of the ovary. What's important for the listener is that if we know it's an endometrioma, if we remove the, the cyst of endometriosis of the ovary, they actually would have accelerated loss of some healthy uh, ovarian tissue and uh, getting further uh, loss of eggs and diminishing ovarian reserve. So if we go to IVF after that, they're going to get lesser number of eggs than we would typically expect for their age and ovarian age testing, like anti-malarian hormone. On the other hand, if we keep the cyst of endometriosis or the endometrioma, they will have a diminished response to the egg retrieval. So given that, as I said, they're between a rock and a hard place, do you rely on MRI to, to help you um, assess whether an endometri- uh, a mass on the ovary is an endometrioma? 
I, I don't because I believe my eyes are are good enough <clears throat> good enough to uh, to be able to differentiate uh, the the types of pathology that's on the ovary. Uh, that may not be your uh, particular approach, but I I um, I don't I don't generally move into that uh, you know into that type of imaging uh, when uh, the ultrasound is usually fairly uh, fairly certain in making the diagnosis. Right. Okay. No. Fair enough. Fair enough. Very good. So let's let's move to to another uh, area um, that has changed since we've trained and and. We've known now for some time that uh, a blocked swollen tubes, as opposed to tubal occlusion uh, in the beginning portion of the uterus, the tubal blockage at the end is called the hydrosalpinx, and the, the, the success rates of, of opening a, a tube like that, uh, and, and then the subsequent ectopic uh, risk. Could you comment on that a little bit, Steve? Um, well... A lot of it is uh, preoperative counseling. Uh, I use the HSG a uh, little bit less on the ultrasounds, uh, although if you see a, a clear dilated structure adjacent to the tube suggestive of a hydrosalpinx, the HSG is very good because the distal uh, folds, we call rugal folds, um, give some prognostic value that when you go in laparoscopically of what the success rate is going to be in terms of what the tubal architecture is going to look like. Uh, with that said, even though I can give prognostic uh, uh, assessments to the patient preoperatively, I tell everyone that there's a chance that the fallopian tube should come out or there should be some uh, occlusion of it. But I tell everyone that I will open up the tube because um, there are there are the isolated cases where um, you will be absolutely surprised that after you begin to dissect away the adhesions that you see these pink uh, octopus-like uh, finger-like projections at the end of the tube, and you're just like, wow, that's, that's, uh, that's I'm really, really surprised. But we can, using, uh, using what the tube looks like preoperatively, intraoperatively, make a real educated decision um, in terms of uh, the prognosis for the patient, but Again, I keep, I'm going to keep coming back to the same thing. Every patient's individualized. There's some patients that cannot afford to do IVF. And uh, even though they understand that there's a risk of an ectopic pregnancy, uh, if that patient pleads with me and says, this is the only way I can get pregnant, I will, um, I will make every attempt I can to open the tube and fold them back, you know, the typical salpingolysis, neosalpingostomy. But... Um, if there's any question at all, what I will do is interoperatively, I will stop what I'm doing and go out and talk to the partner and translate what I think is the best thing for the patient. And so we do a lot of preoperative uh, discussion and even intraoperative discussion um, to, to ultimately help me decide or help them help me decide. Uh, that's just how, how I've been trained to practice. And, and um, ultimately, uh, I always call it... Uh, uh, they drive the bus, I just, uh, I'm the tour guide. Right, right. Well, you bring up a good point, uh, but I think that the, you know, if you, uh, when you have complete obliteration of the fimbria, which is the end of the tube, that becomes a tougher tube to want to salvage. I think once you start seeing the, the fimbria, that's probably more of a phimosis uh, disease that, that we can just be, uh, delicately remove that intertubal scarring. 
Uh, but do you do any um, uh, tubal cannulations any longer? Are you talking about distally or approximately? Approximately. Oh, absolutely. Um, if uh, I I always have the Novi cannulas or the instrumentation, uh, you know, accessible to me uh, that um, preoperatively, uh, if I have a what looks like a an occlusion at the uh, connection between the uterus and the fallopian tubes, we refer to as a proximal tubal occlusion. Um, I will uh, be prepared intraoperatively. Uh, to uh, to go ahead and do a uh, tubal cannulation. Now there are some situations where I can do them in the office and use ultrasound um, and look for what we call air bubble contrast, so I can avoid laparoscopy. Uh, or if I'm going to do a laparoscopy and a hysteroscopy, if uh, if it's confirmed that it's a blockage, then I'll go ahead and uh, do a proximal cannulation. Because uh, as we both know. Uh, Many, probably a third to a half of the time that that's a uh, spasm um, and a what we call or referred to as a false positive. But I'm always prepared yeah. to do a proximal tubal cannulation. And, and once again, for our listeners, proximal is the is the area of the fallopian tube right uh, as the uterus enters into the tube. Um, so uh, it seems as though um, reasonable good success in opening it. Uh, pregnancy rates will vary. Uh, anywhere from maybe 20 to 60 percent. Just getting back to the hydrosalpings once again for the listeners, um, the, the, a block swollen tube like that has been shown to reduce success rates with IVF by 50 percent, and you're even going to see maybe a t uh, twice as high uh, miscarriage rate. So you definitely want to get that addressed before um, uh, doing IVF, but also you could potentially even have a uh, uh, spontaneous pregnancies if the other tube is open and, and normal. Uh, in our last uh, moment, Steve, I want to bring up uh, fibroids, which are those uh, nuisance benign tumors that can really make a, a woman's life miserable uh, outside of fertility because of the bleeding and pain. Um, our, our literature has changed from looking at the size of fibroids almost um, irris irrespective of the location but, but um, now really limiting it, well, obviously the outside fibroids, you know, the, 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 the subserosal, we, we leave alone. But if the, if, if the fibroid is, is affecting the uterine cavity or sitting in the uterine cavity, it's obviously recommended to remove. But, but what do you do with a, with a large fibroid intramural? I'm talking about, you know, more than five, six, seven centimeters. Well, I, I think it's... Uh... Some of the literature uh, Mike Diamond uh, published recently that kind of that critical critical mass critical size is about five centimeters, and that's uh, where I'll tell patients that uh, reduction in pregnancy outcomes as well as uh, delivery complications are significantly increased. So that that would be one threshold in which I would take it out uh, before moving forward with IUIs or with IVF. And the other is that if the patient, uh, there's actually two other reasons. If that fibroid grows during pregnancy, you know, in a previous pregnancy, or if the patient miscarries, uh, then I will recommend um, uh, one of two approaches. One is to go ahead and do a myomectomy and then have them come back for treatment. Uh, or in the case of the advanced reproductive age patients, is I would encourage them to bank their eggs or embryos, then have the myomectomy, 
and then um, have an embryo transfer uh, after that. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, we've had several patients like that, and, and sometimes the fibroids will actually make it difficult to get to the ovaries uh, to bank the eggs and freeze them before uh, consideration of surgery. You know, um, the ASRM uh, paper, <coughs> the position paper, really hedged about, inter uh, well, not necessarily hedged, but talking about removing fibroids, it, it, they, they seem to be clear that unless it was causing an abnormality in the cavity, but I think the caveat, uh, then, you want, then you want to remove uh, if it is, but the caveat is, as you said, if it's, if it's a patient who's had miscarriage um, or, or potentially, I guess, the older reproductive age woman, there is not a lot of uh, time to uh, be conservative, uh, but a fibroid, you know, myomectomy, removing fibroids is not a benign surgery. It's a pretty involved one, so uh, obviously a um, significant amount of consultation for the pros and cons uh, need, need to be addressed uh, prior to any surgery, as you mentioned. Well, if I could also throw in uh, uh, to all the listeners, uh, knowing how Dr. Charles and myself practice, uh, again, individualized care. I think that given that we understand that in vitro fertilization costs an, an enormous amount of money, uh, it has a lot of, uh, we refer to it as psychological morbidity, meaning that if the patient doesn't get pregnant, it's very unsettling, that to allow the patient to be proactive in, in their, in the decision-making process is really, really critical because they understand the dilemmas that we go through. Now, you know, most of the time, uh, or some of the times, some decisions, there really aren't any decisions, but when it comes to the gray zones, like taking out an endometrioma, taking out a uterine fibroid, um, I make it very, very clear that it's unclear as to a definitive approach that we should go. And, you know, sometimes when resources are unlimited, um, some patients may move forward with therapy. Uh, when resources are limited and if we know that we can optimize outcomes by normalizing something, then patients may tend to move into the direction of, you know, surgical therapy. But at the end of the day, we need to be facile in doing reproductive surgery to, to augment uh, the outcomes for our patients. You know, all, all excellent points, uh, Steve. Uh, we're at the end of our podcast, and I, and I want to express my appreciation to you, my friend, for taking the time uh, to educate our listeners, and it was a very, very uh, thought-provoking discussion. I, I, I enjoyed it, and I hope all of our listeners were able to gain the information that they need so they can make appropriate decisions uh, uh, as they go through their fertility journey. So I want to thank Dr. Steve Lindheim for joining us today. And until next time, this is Dr. Mark Trellis for the Fertility Health Podcast. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Fertility Health Podcast. If there's anything from today's show you want to learn more about, check out the IVFcenter.com for all the notes, links, and tips mentioned in this episode. If you're not already subscribed to the show, Please press the subscribe button on your podcast player so you don't miss a future episode. And if you haven't given us a review or rating on iTunes yet, consider leaving a five-star review to help us reach and educate even more individuals in need. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode.